Good morning. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking this morning at chapter 1, verses 1 uh, and 2. If you don't have your own Bible, that's totally fine. You can use the Pew Bible and you'll find it on page 1014. If you don't want to do that, it's too, I don't know, strength takes too much energy. Uh, just keep using your bulletin. It's printed for you there. Uh, same words. Uh, anyway, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here. And we are so glad that you're here because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. I mean, for instance, you could still be celebrating the Titans' big win. Who would have thought that? You just get Ryan Tannehill and uh, just give the ball to Derrick Henry and you win the game every time, right? And so, uh, or you might not be rejoicing in the Titans, but you could be rejoicing in the University of Tennessee football that definitely won the transfer portal uh, this week, which is pretty incredible. Who would have thought? We thought we were at the back of the bus, you know, maybe not even on the bus. Now it feels like we're driving the bus. Uh, You might not be celebrating in football, but you could be celebrating Clemson's huge win yesterday. They beat North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill for the first time in, I think, 60 years and the first time ever. So we were 0-59, and now we're 1-60. So that's our 1-59. I don't know how math works. But anyway, so those things are fantastic. But you might not be a sportsman, and so you could be down at the convention center uh, participating in the Star City Games tournament, which is a magic cards game that is being streamed for the world to watch here from Knoxville. But you're not, you're here, uh, and I want to thank you for coming. It's good to have you with us. Uh, welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week, as his people, we gather together to worship him in order to learn how to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, more and more, we become a people who delight to gather together in community. We love to spend time with each other. We love to to read the Bible together. We love to pray together, all to remind each other of God's love for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University in Knoxville, and hopefully in some way. It would spill out into the entire world. That's who we are, a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this season of Epiphany, we're beginning this new series uh, on these reflections from 1 Peter. I want to remind you that, uh, that uh, epiphany means the manifestation or the revealing. And it's the celebration of God's mission in this world that God has revealed himself to the Gentiles and he has brought sinners into his family. And you know, and often as God invites us into his family and often as we participate in God's mission, we find our lives being turned upside down as we begin to think about who we are in this world and how we live in this world and how we understand our place in this world. And as we think about who we are in Christ, uh, our lives begin to change. And we find ourselves at times strangers in this strange land. That we're strangers in this strange land. And that's what I want us to think about over the next few months, that we are strangers 
in this strange land. And so this morning we'll begin looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 as we consider our strange identity, right? Our strange identity. With that in mind, let's look together 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we are so very thankful that you are a God who's not hidden, nor are you silent, but you delight to reveal yourself. You delight to call people out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've done that in your word and by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately, you do that in the person and work of Jesus. And so now over these next few moments, as we attend unto your word, we ask that you Uh, would attend unto us, that by your spirit you would show us lovely things of Jesus, our elder brother, and you would show us lovely things of our merciful heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Harry Potter, Uh, but if you haven't, Harry Potter is, he was uh, this young man who uh, finds out he's a wizard. And he gets invited to go to a wizarding school called Hogwarts. And once he goes to Hogwarts, all this magical stuff happens. If you've ever read these books, you'll remember that Harry was an orphan. And he was reluctantly taken in by his aunt and his uncle. And though they had taken him in, they despised him. And they made him live under the stairs. Uh, They ignored his birthday. Uh, They didn't pour out any love or any affection upon him. And whenever little Dudley or Big Dudley would come in, they would just love him and pour out their affection upon him. And whenever guests would come over to the house, like they would ask Harry to kind of leave and hide or to serve them. And they were essentially emotionally and verbally and at times physically abusive to Harry. And Harry, in a sense, was really nothing to them. And so you can imagine being this young, uh, blooming, budding wizard who doesn't know he's a wizard, lying on his mat under the stairs and the dust is coming, you know, through the cracks in the stairs. And he's laying there, surely feeling alone and confused and purposeless and meaningless and significant and unimportant until one day something happens and an owl delivers a letter and that letter is addressed to him and it's not only addressed to him he'd never received this a letter before but it's addressed to him and not only is it to him but it also knows where he is And it's addressed to Mr. H. Potter, the cupboard under the stairs for Privet Drive, Little Winging Surrey. And to see that letter must have been incredibly exciting to Harry because uh, because he begins to realize, like, somebody knows who I am. Someone actually cares about me enough to write this letter to me. Someone actually sees me and knows me. Someone cares. And 
the Dursleys, they also saw these letters, and they weren't really excited about uh, Harry getting these letters, so they take the letters from him, and as they take the letters, all of a sudden, more owls start showing up, and these owls all have letters, and they're dropping off the letters and dropping off the letters, and every one of those letters is also addressed to him. It's addressed in the very same way, Mr. H. Potter, the cupboard under the stairs for Privet Drive, Little Winging Surrey. And surely you can imagine as all these letters are coming and they keep coming to him, Harry's life begins to change. It begins to turn upside down because now he's no longer this person that nobody knows about, nobody cares about. But there's somebody who wants to be in touch with him. There's somebody who knows him. There's someone who's writing to him. And he begins to feel more and more significant and more and more emboldened. And you see he and Uncle Vernon wrestling over some of these letters until finally... This large man named Hagrid, or Hagrid, whatever you call him, shows up, and he's this half-giant. And he comes to Harry, and he says, Harry, you're a wizard. Everyone knows you. You're special. And you've been invited to come to this magical school called Hogwarts. And you could imagine hearing this. I mean, finally, this young boy who had all of his life felt insignificant, unimportant, now realizes that he's actually someone, that he's known, that he's loved, that he has meaning, that he has purpose in this world. And from that moment on in Harry's life, everything is different. And that's what's happening here in 1 Peter. Not so much that this letter was delivered by owls, uh, but this is a letter. And it was written to a people who feel insignificant and unimportant. It is written to a people who are marginalized by their society, alienated in their relationships, and forgotten in this world. And Peter is writing them to remind them who they are. That though they are strangers in this world, they are loved by God. Though they are strangers in this world, they are loved by God. First, they're strangers. You see this in verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You see that he's writing to these exiles, sojourners, refugees throughout Asia Minor, which we now know as Turkey. He's writing to these strangers in the world, these foreigners in this land, to these people who live in this land and they lack citizenship and they're viewed with suspicion by the people that they live around. They are seen as outsiders. There are a lot of theories about who these people may or may not have been, but I think most likely these people to whom Peter is writing were, are those who were expelled from Rome by Claudius at the great expulsion in A.D. Uh, 49. There, there are these famous comments in ancient history that, that say this, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. And so many people hear this phrase, Crestus, and they see it as this reference to the Christ, and at the time, in 49 AD, at that point, the Christians were really just a sect, seen as a sect of Judaism. And so in, the Rome, in, in Rome, right, these, there was this disturbance rising up among the Jews over this guy named Jesus. And it was disrupting the peace of the city. 
And then the Christians were disrupting the peace of what it meant to be Roman. Because the Christians were now talking about Jesus. And they were saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the emperor. He is the Lord of all things. Calling people to trust in him. Saying, Jesus is Caesar. They had a different morality. They lived their lives in completely different ways than the Romans around them. And then Romans were actually becoming Christians. It was not only disrupting the peace of Rome, but it was undercutting what it meant to be a Roman citizen. Because now Christians were saying, Jesus is our king, and we live in his kingdom. And so Claudius, it seems, expelled many of these Jews, many of whom would have been Christians at the time, and they left the city. And so Peter writes to them, writing to these exiles, these refugees who were despised at home and feared in their new cities, seen as outsiders, seen as strangers, seen as those who were confusing. And it would have been easy for them to have moved into these new areas and felt alone and felt forgotten. It would have been easy for them to have felt insignificant and unimportant. And so as Peter is writing to them, he's doing something very significant, very interesting, because what he's doing is he is inviting them to understand their lives through the lens of the people of God. He's inviting them to interpret their lives through the lens of Israel. And by doing this, he is saying, look, your life may seem strange to you, and your life might seem strange to your neighbors, but this is God's normal way of doing things. I want you to look at the language that Peter uses in verse 1. He calls them the elect. Right? This is the language of Israel. They are God's elect. They are God's people chosen by God, set apart by God, called to be his children and to reflect the Father's love throughout the entire world. They are elect. Notice the language of exile. Israel had been exiled. Abraham himself defined himself in Genesis chapter 24 or 23 as an exile. Even the language that's used of sprinkling with blood that is covenantal, sacrificial language being applied to the people. And by using this language, by using these images, Peter is saying to these people, you're one of us. You are God's people. You are children of the Heavenly Father. Exiles in this world. And the clearest expression that he uses of this is that he calls them exiles of the dispersion. And when we read this phrase, exiles of the dispersion, we should immediately be reminded of the Babylonian exile when the people of God were exiled from their homes in Jerusalem and they were taken into Babylon and forced to live as refugees, forced to live as exiles in a foreign land among a foreign people. They were outsiders. They were strangers who were committed not to Babylon, but they were committed to God, living different lives in this strange world. 
And God, in his kindness, then writes a letter to these exiles in the dispersion. In Jeremiah 29. And he writes to them and he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then he goes on he says, in 70 years I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And so by calling them the exiles of the dispersion, Like Peter is giving them this amazing gift. He is reminding them that they belong to God. That God actually has a plan for them. That he has a purpose for them. That he has not abandoned them. He's telling them that there is hope for them. That God has set up an inheritance for them. And by doing this, he's telling them like how they ought to now engage the world that they're to be a people who are committed to God. They're there to be a people who bear witness to the love of the Father, that they love their neighbors, that they live faithfully in this world, that they live obediently to Jesus, that they love their neighbor, that they pray for the city, that they cry out to God in hope for his restored presence. This is who we are. This is how God invites us to live as his people, exiles in this world, refugees in this world, strangers in this land. Abraham felt it. He he described himself as an exile. Israel felt it. It's their story. Peter is writing to people who are exiles and strangers, and surely you feel it in your own life. You feel strange in this world. At times you feel like you don't fit in. At times you feel like you don't understand anymore. Think about our international students among us. Think about the refugees of our city. And think about the confusion that they regularly find themselves living in. The language confusion. The cultural illusions Talk about facts of life or the Jeffersons. What is that? Talk about Saved by the Bell. I didn't watch Saved by the Bell in Indonesia. Right? These cultural illusions, these cultural references. What, what is culturally appropriate? It's strange the way we relate to time. It's strange the way we dress. It's strange the way we eat. We don't always understand the communication between one another, what's going on, and, what, and why is it that 100,000 people gather together on a Saturday to watch 21-year-old men in tight, short pants and weird hats like hit each other and throw a ball, right? It's confusing. And that's often how we feel in the world, right? Like, what is going on here? Who am I here? And it seems to me that one of the strangest things that we do 
is this. This is weird. Uh, many of us go to bed early on a Saturday night. We didn't get to watch and finish the football game because we wanted to get up in the morning and be alive when we woke up. To gather together. And we, we come to this space all together from all of our different neighborhoods and we read the Bible. We read a book together. We, we pray together. We, we confess a God we've never seen. We profess a love for a God that we do not see. We feel this strangeness in our lives and in the world because we actually believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's true. And therefore, we shape our lives and want our lives to be bent towards it. And that then impacts everything we do. I mean, it's strange that we give our money away. It's strange that we seek to turn the other cheek. It's, it's strange that the things that we desire, we want for our neighbor. And so we give effort, we give money, we give time for other people to receive the things that we want to receive. It's strange that we take our, our sexual ethics from the scriptures, from an ancient text. Why would we do that? Because we believe God speaks to his children and desires certain things for us as we walk with him. It is strange that we believe that there really is forgiveness. A world that only believes in judgment. We believe in grace. We believe in mercy. We believe that you can be restored. We believe that people change. We believe in the resurrection from the dead. We are strange people. And so here's the deal. We're strangers. And sometimes we're surprised by that. But we shouldn't be. We should actually rejoice that we are strangers. Because our strangeness flows out of our calling. We are strangers because we are loved by God. One of the things that seems true, I think, of most of us, if we are left to ourselves, is that we would look to this world to give us meaning and comfort, hope. We look to the world to give us value. We, we live in this secular age, right, that believes that this is all that there is, and so therefore we've got to get what we can get now. We've got to do what we want to do now. We are the ones who have to define what is good, define what is valuable, define uh, what is true. And so what happens for us in this world is we use this world to define ourselves. We use this world to convey meaning about who we are. And so we look to our jobs and we look to our fitness and to our power and to our reputation. We look to our children we look to our sexuality, we look to our gender, we look to our cars and our clothes and our colleges and our degrees and our vacations. We look to the people that we know and are friends with, the people that we party with. And we look to them and we say, you are the one, like I get meaning from you or I give meaning to you. These are the things that tell us who we are. They tell us we're valuable, they tell us we're significant and I look to you and I define you by the things that you have and the things that you do. But as Christians, 
Though we believe these things matter, we believe that they matter for different reasons. You see, we believe that God gives value, that God gives order, that God gives dignity. We believe that God gives comfort. We believe that this world matters because it matters to God. And he is the one who conveys, he is the one who gives meaning. The world doesn't define us. We don't define the world. But God does. We believe that God orients our lives in this world. And it is this God to whom and by whom we are, verse 1, elect. And in this word elect, what we see is that God, by his grace, calls us into this new allegiance with him. He calls us into a new relationship with him. He calls us into a new love with him. And it's this relationship that we've been invited into with him that actually begins to make us strange. Think about a young college man who falls in love with a woman. Before he'd fallen in love, like before love, uh, what does he do? He plays video games and eats pizza all night with his bros. After he falls in love, what does he do? He goes on long walks and has picnics by the river, right? With, uh, because the relationship of love changes everything. And that's the way it is with God, and that is the purpose of election, that God would love us, that we would love him, right? That we would love him and draw near to him and live for him. And though our lives might seem strange to our neighbors, they begin to feel more and more normal to us. Though to our neighbors, our lives might seem enslaving, it becomes freedom to us because we've been elected, called, chosen to be loved and to love God in return. And what I want you to see here is that the whole Trinity is at work in this relationship. You see it in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. I want you to think about this. Think about this community that received this letter, this, this people who were living in exile, feeling alone and forgotten in the world. And what Peter is telling them is that God has been at work in your lives forever. That God has known you and loved you before you ever knew him. You see, election in the Bible was never meant to be a theological topic that we would beat each other up with. It was never meant to be a theological topic that we would even debate. It was never meant to be a theological topic that we would divide over. It is the act of God knowing and loving his people, setting apart a people to be loved by him and to love him in return. In fact, the Bible uses election as the greatest source of our assurance that you've always been known, you've always been loved, and you always will be. And that begins to define our existence. It begins to define our purpose that we have been set apart to know him and to love him as he has loved us. 
This is about assurance and encouragement to us as we live our lives through our various trials. And he says that we are, verse 1, elect, according to verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, again, this concept of foreknowledge is a confusing concept. Uh, but what it is not is this. Foreknowledge is not God looking down the tunnel of history to see who we would become or what we would do or what we would believe. It, it's not God spying on us and observing us from all of eternity and collecting information on us that he could use against us. Instead, foreknowledge is God's forelove of us. Knowledge in the Bible, knowing in the Bible is about intimacy. It's about connectivity. It's about being known deeply and loved. And so theologians like Edmund Clowney say to be foreknown is to be an object of God's loving concern from all of eternity. You're an object of God's loving concern from all of eternity. So, uh, uh, John Stott says it this way, it's, it's God's sovereign, distinguishing love, which fits with Moses' great statement that the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. Right? The source of this divine election and this divine foreknowledge is his divine love. And so Peter is saying that we are loved by the Father. We always have been. And we always will be. But not only that. He says you are elect, verse 1, in, verse 2, the sanctification of the Spirit. And so this is amazing because we are not only Right? Foreknown by the Father. The Father is not only loving us, but now the Spirit is sanctifying us. The Spirit is setting us apart to know the Father's love. Now think about this. We would never know the Father's love if the Spirit did not reveal it to us. And it's the same Spirit that is now setting us apart to be a people who live in and live out of the Father's love. And so we've been loved from eternity, set apart by the Spirit to know and to enjoy that love so that out of that love of God the Father, we might begin to live and share it with others. You see, in the mind of Peter, to be sanctified is to be set apart as holy. And holiness, in Peter's mind, is not being set apart to be a rule follower. Holiness in the mind of the Bible is to be set apart as one for a special use. It is set apart to be one who would know the Father and live out of his love. It is set apart to be near the Father, to love the Father, and then to begin to be those who love him and pursue him in return. And so Peter goes on, we're foreloved by the Father, we're sanctified by the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Now, again, this phrase, obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood, is another complicated phrase. Uh, many take it to just sort of say it means that God has loved us, he's set us apart to obey him, and to be cleansed by him. And though that is true, I think there's a lot more going on because Christianity is more than just about obedience and forgiveness, Remember what we've said over and over again and what John had told us that what is eternal life? 
John 17. What is eternal life? That you would know the Father. That you would know Christ. What is, what is Christ's desire for us in salvation? That we would be with Jesus where he is. And where is Jesus? In the presence of the Father, with the Spirit. You see, salvation in the Bible is more than just forgiveness. Salvation in the Bible is about being brought near to the Father, being in communion with God. It is about God restoring his family to himself. And so the Spirit reveals the Father's love to us. The Son shows the Father's love to us. And so that we would love. Remember, 1 John tells us we love. Why? Because he first loved us. And though our love will always work itself out in obedience, and though the Father's love will always work itself out in forgiveness, obedience and forgiveness always flow out of the relationship first. They flow out of God's love, the Spirit's sanctifying work, the Son's gracious blood. And so when we read this for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, I think Peter is using a technical phrase here. And what he's doing is he's using this idea of obedience and sprinkling to allude to this thing called the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I think many of you know what a covenant is, but if you don't, a covenant is basically just a promise. And in the Bible, the great covenant promise is that I will be your God and you will be my people. I being God, not me. Like, the great promise of the Bible is that God is saying to us, I will be your God, you will be my people. And that covenant promise was the way God's people always understood themselves. He is our God. We are his people. And so in Exodus chapter 24, after God had saved his people from their slavery in Egypt, he then reminds them of everything that he has done for them and all the ways in which he has loved them and all the work that he has done on their behalf. The people of God then say, you are our God, and we will obey you. And then do you know what Moses does on behalf of the Father? He sprinkles them with blood. As if to set the people apart as his dearly loved children. As those who belong to him and would be his priest in this world, revealing the love that the Father has for us, reflecting his love and reflecting his goodness, living as dearly loved children, obedient children in this world. But the problem of the Mosaic, with the Mosaic Covenant was that the people of God, the children of God, failed. The children of God became disobedient. The children of God turned away from the love of the Father and they wanted to go their own way like a rebellious teenager. They went and did their own thing and thought their father had nothing to offer them. But what's beautiful in this letter is that though the Mosaic covenant had failed, now Peter alludes to this covenant and he no longer says sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. He now says sprinkling 
that we are being sprinkled, this, this ongoing sprinkling, and it is no longer the blood of an animal, but it is the blood of God himself. And the point of this is that God has said to us, I'll do this. I'll do this relationship for us. I will secure it. And no longer it is the blood of the animal, but it is my own blood. It is my blood that will secure your obedience. It is my blood that will welcome you. It is my blood that will bring you near. And so now as God's people, we go out through the blood of Jesus into the world. As dearly loved, obedient children. And it is now through Jesus' blood that God is our God. And we are his people. That's amazing. And it's so amazing that now we gather together on a weekly basis and we do one of the strangest things that, you could, that we would ever do. We reenact that covenant every week. I've got some blood back here. I'll throw it up. It's at the table. Every week as we come to this table, we reenact that covenant. And it's at this table that God reminds you of what he has done. It's, we come to this table to say, you're our God. We live for you. And then remember what happens at this table? When we come to the table, the Lord Jesus says, this bread is my body given for you. And then in the same manner after the supper, what does he do? He takes the cup and he says, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do this every week to remind us that we engage this world through the blood of Jesus. And it is the blood of Jesus that defines you. It is the blood of Jesus that marks you out in this world as belonging to him. It is the blood of Jesus through which we come to the Father. It is the blood of Jesus by which we know the love of the Father. It is the blood of the, Je- is the, blood of the Jesus that makes us obedient children to the Father. It is the blood of Jesus that sets us apart to be strangers in this world, but loved by God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your blood shed on our behalf, for drawing us into relationship with you. We pray that more and more we might live as joyful, loving, obedient children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.